Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 104. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Roy Bentley is our guest today, one of our Appalachian poets from the new issue of Rattle. Uh, he'll be joining us in about 15 minutes, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do, so please do click that like button and share and all that good stuff. Um, now, as always, we're going to start with a little bit of Poets Respond Live, and um, we have a really interesting Sestina today as the featured poem by Jenna Lanzaro, and let's call up Jenna right now and see if we can get connected with her. Hey, Jenna, you are live on the Rattlecast. Thanks so much for joining me. I think I hear myself in the background, so make sure you turn off or hit mute on whatever you're watching the stream at. Hi there. Sorry about that. Is that are we good now? Yeah, we're good now. So thanks so much for joining me. It's okay. a it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, um, Thank so, you. So, I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, where are you calling from? First of all, I think you said you were in New Jersey. Yes, I'm calling in from Jersey City. Yeah, great. And um, so let's talk a little bit about this poem. Um, a really, really fascinating Sestina that you wrote here. Incredible truths. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about what inspired it? Sure. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately uh, over the course of the pandemic about what to do with numbers. Um, I think we've been sort of inundated with numbers and, and statistics, um, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. It's like we see graphs of exponential growth and we hear that cases are doubling per day. But to process that emotionally is is so difficult um, and so different than sort of processing it logically. Um so recently, last week or the week before, when Jeff Bezos uh, went up into space, all of those questions were sort of brought back to the forefront. Um, like, how do we get at the emotional heft of someone whose wealth increased, I think, by like 70% over the course of the pandemic um, and is sort of using that to go on joyrides in space while, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, we have people who throughout the course of the pandemic, like can't even house and feed themselves. And so uh, the poem sort of came from this question of how do we access the emotional scope of numbers, facts, statistics, all that. Yeah, the poem reminded me of, um, have you ever seen, I can't remember what they call it, but they, um, it's, it's a way to conceptualize what a billionaire actually is. And it's imagining laying out dollar bills on a football field. Have you ever seen that before? It's yeah, like yeah. Old I've video heard from that. like like fifteen years ago. Yeah, and so like if like if you laid out the income where every dollar represented a certain amount of money, or I think a thousand dollars of income, or something like that. Um, you know, for the, at the very beginning of the football field, it would be like millimeters high, and then even by the fifty yard line, it'd be like three millimeters high. Um, yeah. For like the fiftieth percentile, and then like right at the edge of the goal line on the football field, it just shoots off into space because we just can't conceive of what a billion dollars was. And that was something yeah. that was made, you know, in old school graphics like 20 years ago or so. And we were just talking about billionaires. And now these people are, tri you know, almost trillionaires, um, like yeah. 100, 100 yeah. billionaires, I guess. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely difficult to to process. Like, I, I think this poem came out of a place of I don't really have an answer to the question of how do we emotionally conceive of something that's like almost impossible to conceive of. 
Yeah, and and the form is so interesting too because I love. I mean, where, what really makes it work? There's two things that are great about it. The, the sestina form, uh, which is sort of a hidden sestina because you don't break out the the um, the stanzas like you normally would, yeah. which is interesting. Um, and 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 also the way that um, um, it, it turns personal at the end too. Like it becomes, yeah. uh, you know, it, it goes from sort of a broad concept into something very intimate. Um, do you want to talk about how, just how the poem came to be? Like, why did you choose the Sestina form? Sure. Um, honestly, a lot of it came from a practical place of, um, I've been kind of creatively stopped up lately and forms like the Sestina just kind of um, are ways that I can generate writing. Um, but I think especially because the Sestina repeats itself, so much because you only have six end words to work with. Um, I think it's really great for getting at puzzles, like questions that don't really have answers because the repetition means that you keep looping around and looping around and coming at it from a different direction. Um, and, and I think that's what I had to do with this question and also why it became personal because I sort of thought I was writing politically and then it ended up being um, as much about sort of personal loss as it was about these bigger questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where it really, it just sort of takes off and sings at that point. Um, and as far as the Cessina form, we had a great comment just on our Facebook page from T.R. Paulson, who's a regular listener and, and our, our resident formalist in the audience who always talks about formal poetry. <laughs> but, but she mentions, um, um, that the breaks in the form work beautifully to enhance the speaker's search for truth and inability to find it, which is, I thought, exactly what, what it works. You know, it's sort of pursuing something in a sonnet, or, I mean, in a sestina, yeah. and, and then sort of, you know, trying to find this, like, the pattern, you know, and, and try to make yeah. sense of sort of the patterns that you see or something. It's the sort of feel of a sestina. It works really well for this poem's topic. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, well, do you want to go ahead and read it? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Okay. Incredible truths. Two folks at a table exchange incredible truths. The Mariana Trench is 36,000 feet deep, 1,000 feet more than the cruising altitude of a plane. When you are on a plane, there is a farther far than the surface of the earth. When you are on earth, there is a farther far than the sky. There is always a farther far, if you believe the universe is infinite, but also expanding. A far that is and isn't a fixed place. The girl says all contradictions are true, while looking for proof in the sky. Her hair resembles something accustomed to deep seas, long and breathless in alien air. The boy says exponential growth, points to a plane. Today, Jeff Bezos left Earth. They say he'll be a trillionaire. He bites a plain croissant. The far of that from us. People don't get how far one billion is on a scale, a magnitude as swollen as the earth. She is scared of exponential growth. Also, paper cuts, telling the truth, and that this meal will end. The girl sips deeply. The boy looks at the sky where the girl looked before. He is patient, but counting. He looks at the sky, not her, or the words as irrefutable as what they've put on the plain surface of the table at the cafe. Once, still, he was deep in her. The Mariana Trench, she says, is far enough that the truth of what is there is not a truth we know, us of the surface of the earth. But there is a truth, 
and the trench is earth after all. And she doesn't say this out loud. You have always been, for me, like a sky, a not-place place, a largeness like the gullet of a lanternfish. Truth, chanted, becomes a sound. She does not say out loud, I flew on a plane and you didn't know. I was far and you didn't know. I read a book about lakes in the deep, brine pools on the sea floor. I met deep and insignificant people. For them, you are words. I went from one part of earth to another part of earth, so far from this table. I was in the sky and you didn't know. I looked in your direction from a plane. I thought that we were and that we are not. Yeah, that's just a great poem. Thanks so much for sharing and reading that incredible truth by Jenna Lanzaro. And um, let me ask you about one line before you go. That, that line, he bites a plain croissant. I don't know. We always talk on this show about, about certain lines that just stand out. And there's something about that line that's so simple and authentic and telling or something. Um, where did you see that detail? Is it something that you actually saw or did it just pop out? What was that about? Um, I think the form of the Sestina kind of, kind of took me there because I started really removed in third person. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that plane, P-L-A-N-E, like an airplane, as an N-word, um, I could also use P-L-A-I-N, like I could also use variations of it. And it kind of led me to thinking um, about, I guess, zooming in, like a plain croissant and a plain table. So that line was actually kind of a key for me in moving the poem from um, sort of the outer exterior world to an interior world. Yeah, it's just always really cool to watch the way poems work and the sort of magic happens that are in a poem. Um, and I think that is a, an important turn there in that. Um, but anyway, thanks so much for sharing this, uh, Jen. It's great to talk to you and, and share this great poem. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, have a good night. Thank you. You too. Bye. Yeah, so once again, that was uh, Jenna Lanzaro. You can find more of uh, Jenna's work at her website, which is jennalanzaro.com right here. Now let me put it on screen. Jenna Lanzaro, like you see, J-E-N-N-A-L-A-N-Z-A-R-O, jennalanzaro.com. So uh, we have one other poem, a bonus poem, and um, the poet is a is a popular poet for the um, for both Poets Respond and the Ekphrastic Challenge. Uh, Devin Balwit includes poems. You know, she submits poems pretty much every week, which is just wonderful because they're always good. And um, she submitted a poem this week which sort of stretched the boundaries for what uh, a Poets Respond poem could be uh, because there's no real news article, technically, that goes with this. Now, the news that happened with this is um, a few years old, but there's a wonderful a video op-ed in the New York Times this week about uh, Jocelyn Bell, the astronomer who discovered pulsars, and her story about how, you know, because she was a woman, she wasn't taken seriously, and her um, her partners at, at the research, which she helped really set up as a, as a um, postdoc, um, uh, won the Nobel Prize for discovering pulsars, and she was left out. And, uh, and so I really encourage everybody, when this link comes up, or just search for this video. It's about a 15-minute um, documentary video from the New York Times, which just does amazing work. When when New York Times is on, there is no better newspaper in the world. And because it was in the newspaper this week, I think it counts as um, for Poets Respond. And just a great story to, um, to, to talk about and share, and a really wonderful reaction to it by Devin Balwit. And let's take a look at this poem right now before we get to Roy Bentley. Uh, here it is. This is uh, Pulsar by Devon Balwit. She couldn't join us today, but we will uh, hear her read it right now. Pulsar 
for Jocelyn Bell, astronomer. Back then, we girls were taught homemaking, while the boys bent over Bunsen burners, cheering as chemicals burst into flame and catcalling any of us who entered the room. She, though, had always hungered after the vastness of space, willing to be a freak if she could work with the stars, even hauling cables and spooling through charts. When she found the anomaly, her boss told her it was nothing, but women are used to finding something in the nothing we are left. She found a second one and watched the Nobel go to her lab director. The visionary skipper differs from the crew, he said, explaining the oversight. But minus the nobody in the crow's nest, no shout would galvanize the ship. Only a girl trumpeted headline after headline. What was her bra size, her preference in men? Decade after decade, she persisted in doing what she loved. The wonder she found came in tipping her head back, not bowing it under a silken ribbon. Yeah, just a wonderful poem there by Devin Balwit. Um, and uh, let me read. Uh, this is De- Devin's note about the poem. In high school, I remember having to fight to be allowed to study drafting and aerodynamics rather than crookery and what it was like to be the only girl in those classes. So Jocelyn Bell's story resonated. How lucky that she persisted for those who received scholarships from her $3 million much-belated award. It's important that girls have role models, she said. Indeed, hurrah to Fred Hoyle as well for championing her cause. And um, and that is the poem. And I do really encourage everybody to uh, check out the New York Times article. Maybe I'll click on it here just so you can sort of see. I won't play it. But this is it, uh, in the op-ed section of the New York Times. She changed astronomy forever. He won the Nobel Prize for it. In 1967, Jocelyn Bell Burnell made an astounding discovery. But as a young woman in science, her role was overlooked. So check this out. It's a video documentary by Ben Proudfoot and featuring Jocelyn Bell herself. So um, do check that out. Uh, if you would, it's a great poem. And that'll be Tuesday's featured poem on rattle.com. And now let's uh, take a brief break, and we'll get to Roy Bentley, our main guest today. So I'm going to put up the splash screen, and uh, we'll see Roy Bentley in just a minute. And we're back. I have Roy Bentley on the line. Uh, Roy Bentley is an Appalachian American poet and university creative writing professor. He lit the lives of the poor in America are the primary focus of his work. He's been published in poetry journals as well as in four books of poetry and ten chapbooks. He currently resides in Patascala, Ohio. Roy Bentley's poems have appeared in Blackbird, Shenandoah, Rattle, The Southern Review, Prairie Schooner, as well as many other notable journals and magazines. He's the recipient of the Creative Writing Fellowship for the National Endowment for the Arts and fellowships from the Florida Division of Cultural Affairs and the Ohio Arts Council. Um, Hillbilly Guilt, his most recent book, is the winner of the Willow Run Poetry Book Award. And uh, here he is, Roy Bentley. Hello, Roy. How are you doing today? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing Thanks great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's just my pleasure. Um, and uh, let me, uh, normally I just say jump in with a poem right away, but I forgot to pull up your uh, your books that you sent because I don't have them uh, next uh, to me. I have them in email. So give me one second. Um, but uh, do you want to talk just a little bit about what, what Hillbilly Guilt is about before we before you read a poem from it? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I've been thinking about this and I, thanks to the pandemic, had two books come out in the same year. 
one of which uh, the title poem takes on my mother and father's divorce when I was a kid. And the other one leads in the same story in a different way. Um, one of them talks about how before it happened, we lived in kind of beautiful plenty. They had Cadillacs and, you know, they were, um, you know, hillbilly rich in a way, like Elvis or something. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, they were both of them a mess and luckily got back together and lived their life out. Um, each one of these books, though, takes on a different theme. This one's about the mistakes we live with, make and live with, and make and live with. And the other one um, is a little bit more cheery in some sense about what we rescue while we're doing that. Uh, and um, I, I thought I'd start with this hillbilly guilt one. Yeah, what yeah. Uh, what, what poem do you want to read first? Hillbilly Guilt. It's okay. the title. Okay. It, poem it, it, what page is it on? It's on page 13 in okay. your hymnal. Okay. Go ahead whenever you're ready. I got it now. All right. Thanks. Hillbilly Guilt. I was staying with him in his trailer that June. Weekends he drank. Maybe he felt his life was wrecked, though I didn't know what wrecking your life was about. He and my mother were talking after having been divorced for a few years. This after he lost a shell station to employee theft. He had a case of hillbilly guilt, but was working and lived in another town. And he was trying to convince my mother to leave Dayton, meaning sell a house which she'd kept by factory work. She hadn't said yes, so he was angry most of the time. There was a picnic where he was working, and he got smashed. I got him to leave, but he spun the tires on his T-bird and drove like whatever god-awful thing happened next had nothing to do with being drunk and pissed off. Which was when I prayed that he would crash the car, that whichever god heard the prayers of scared kids would keep us from getting there, and her seeing him like that, meaning I was praying for them to remarry. I had on a seatbelt, though they weren't common, and he said later, he remembered reaching over at a hundred mile per hour in a downpour and cinching it tight, lying that he knew we were about to leave the road. He didn't. And his waxed gorgeous 63 T-Bird was the wreck we climbed out of, walking to where I waved someone down who took us to a hospital. I recall he broke his nose, that it bled and bled and that he wanted me to believe what he said happened had happened that way. He seemed to want not to feel what he felt at having risked our lives for nothing. Oh, and I have to tell you, the Chevy to a hospital that stopped had a Virgin Mary on its curving blue dashboard, and that plastic figure said what it said about having a little faith. Yeah, excellent. That was the title poem, Hillbilly Guilt, to uh, Roy Bentley's newest book which he has on the screen right there. Um, uh, so, so, right, one of the yeah. things I read about you is that you were inspired to start writing poetry by Easy Rider. Um, do you yeah, want to yeah, explain yeah. a little bit about, about that, how that happened? <clears throat> well, I was 15, and it came out, and it was like, I mean, you had to be some kind of crazy anyway to, to care about going to the movies and seeing those two fools on motorcycles, but it kind of swept us up. And they really did win our hearts, and, and a lot of us felt like, oh, that'd be cool. That'd be so cool to, you know, to be like that. And then some of us bought the, the what do you call it, the screenplay, 
read it and found out that it was really about blowing it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about going out there and grooving on motorcycles. It was about the big score. And um, anyway, it influenced me to try and say something or find something to say about this crazy America that in 1969, 1970 was, it was, it was pretty scary. I mean, it was um, Nixon president and it was, it was scary. I was on my way to the draft. I was 15, 16. I was headed for the draft if Vietnam kept up and it looked like it would. Uh, it was just scary time. And they offered us something like think of a different way, I think, mm -hmm. like that, you know. And so I started writing poetry and it was shit and it was shit for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I wrote terrible stuff. I burned 350 poems once in a in a stump because they were so bad. This philosophy professor said, do you know how you'll be a better writer? And I said, no. He goes, burn everything you've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. So, so why was it poetry? I mean, I understand, you know, not wanting to go along with, um, you know, the, the, the way that society was going and, and being inspired yeah. by the film that way. But what was it about poetry itself? that, that, that I think drew, rock that, and roll. Uh -huh. I couldn't sing. I couldn't play guitar. And so I tried to figure out, is there, you know, a third path? And Leonard Cohen kind of got me into, you know, why not try poetry? Mm -hmm. And Dylan and um, a lot of songwriters shaped my talent and whatever little I had, you know, until I could go to school and get somebody to tell me not to do it that way, you know, and try it a little different, and, you know, and then come back into your own style, you know. Mm -hmm. So long ago, it's hard to even talk about it. I mean... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And and your style, I mean you really you write about um about real people in that sort of sort of hidden America or something. You know, the, the kind of America yeah. that's not in Hollywood. Um exactly. and not on the, the T V every day, basically. I mean the you know, in Appalachia where you grew up, um and, and all those kind of characters. I mean it's really a sort of a character driven almost like like it feels like you approach poetry in a similar way that a novelist approaches fiction, where you sort of find characters and then tell their stories. Um how how do you go about doing that? Do you do you know a lot of people? Do you like go places and hear things and and write about people you know? Or does it make it up based on what? Like where what is the source yeah. of all these characters that you come up with? You know, I could lie and say I leave the house, but I never do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, since this damn pen, pandemic, I uh, I don't know. I spend a lot of time in the house. I guess I've always been a solitary. Um, what I what I do is there's four or five story threads in my life. The divorce of my parents, the the what like we were talking about the politics I grew up under, you know that whole rebellion theme that everybody in my generation seemed like they got caught on. It was like a carousel, really. Either you were a rebel or you were straight, a jock, or you know you were whatever you were, but you had to fit into your little spot. You know, if you were a hippie, a freak, you better have long hair. And you better have, um, you know, a certain kind of dress. And so that that sort of thing, um, those those kind of stories and, and wrestling with that became the threads in, you know, in my books of poems. But I'm with you. They really like novels, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, they, they really do. I mean, they're very just they're character driven. I mean, it, you, you feel yeah. like you get to know these people as you're reading your poems, which has been the case of all the poems that we've published through yours, too. It's a very yeah. distinctive style. Um, do you want to read another poem? 
Yeah, I was thinking I might try that one that you you published the death of the box turtle about my cousin beating the hell out of a box turtle with a piece off the swing set. <laughs> I love that poem. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, what, what page is that one on? That one, I've, I've got it printed off here. I think it's in the back of it's in the back of Hillbilly Guild. Let me see what page. Okay, let me. Uh, ninety-three. Ninety-three. Okay. Yeah. All right. The death of the box turtle. I'm pretty sure that when she was dying and sang Amazing Grace to him, she wasn't recalling running after him down the long hill of Comanche Drive, spitting up burst bubbles of blood from some dark place deep inside her. He was her grandson, Old Devil, she called him. The before and after photograph of a kid falling from the top of the playground slide or executing a dive off a refrigerator top, educating the knees of the umpteenth pair of Levi blue jeans with kneeling in tar and brake fluid blotted from the carport floor. Once as a sort of joke, he tied her apron strings to the slats of her rocker as she dozed before search for tomorrow. When Bobby, that was his name, was eight or nine, he would go out and come in, come in and go out, slamming doors until there was no escaping him. And he announced his boredom one afternoon by jimmying a steel crossbar from a swing set at the edge of the orchard behind our house and bludgeoning a turtle to death with it. Where the steel had gone in, a shell fracture revealed bloody interior curves. Bobby and I recalled the death of the box turtle years later, after the other wreckage of childhood had retracted. We were driving back from my having read poetry for a good fee at a university in the Midwest. I was buzzing, full of Merlot and poached salmon. Nothing could have been further from my mind than his handiwork come back in the phrase, Granny always liked you best. We were men. Such things should have been put away long ago left to drift like the odor of rotting windfall apples in orchards at the end of autumn. They hadn't been. I want to say the turtle expired easily, bled out, the beneficiary of some unexpected grace loosed like mana from the sky over Kettering, Ohio. Truth is, its going took forever. Someone else had filled in the turtle's wound with clods of earth, some plump child, perhaps, trying to reconstruct something in his or her image, maybe some future veterinarian. I want to say Bobby healed and all that pain fell away, sloughed like shell a reptile head telescopes in and out of, to touch, hear, see bright nothing, if nothing else. But healing is part forgetting, a search for tomorrows. He didn't heal. He might have had the song gone on and Granny Potter, weak of heart, diabetic, come back from the country of memory, some holler, up from the deathbed of her terribly important one life, which, come to think of it, was what she did, choosing Bobby to sing to before she died, her piercing a cappella dirge of amazing grace, sounding in a hospital room by a creek where turtles drank, had forever, and trudged off small, liminal, pitifully slow in the light that was the death of the box turtle uh from both rattle number 72 the summer issue and um and hillbilly guilt roy bentley's newest book which you see on the screen there um 
So, so what do you think, um, what, what is your purpose? Like when you set out to write a poem, um, yeah. what do you think the poem's job is to do? Uh, you know, do you, I, I read, <laughs> you said at one point that you were a, uh, a poet, more of a mechanic than an engineer when it comes to poetry, which I really love the way you put that. Uh, yeah. But I'm wondering like what your, what, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, what do you want the reader to get from your poems? You know, I'm, I'm of many minds about that. I've used poetry to meet people and build bridges, you know, relationships. I mean, I think that was one of the reasons we started. People were trying to get, you know, for want of a better word, laid. You know, they wanted to connect with the opposite sex and they liked poems. Women liked poems in 69, 70, 71. It was clear that if you couldn't sing and play guitar and you couldn't grow your hair out, you better have something and for me, it was poetry and it was terrible, but um, they were forgiving and I seemed like I learned and it was just like it was meant to be or something, even though I was bad for so long. I give OU a lot of credit for straightening me out. Um, I had a really good bunch of teachers, one of whom was not a poet. Walter Tevis hmm. has, has a lot to do with how I write and he was a good teacher, but he was a fiction uh, writer. You know, he never gave me above a B plus, um, but I I loved the guy and he was great as a teacher to me, um, and that's all I deserved, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Having taught for many years, Walter was one of the most straightforward, you know, people. Anyway, the way he wrote influenced the way I wrote. It just took me a while to figure out that's what was happening. I was watching him, you know, closely to see what kind of prose worked in the world you know the hustler and um and i think prose did have a lot to do with with um how i write you know mm -hmm. he was a failed poet i feel like i'm sometimes a failed uh, novelist you know when i was in his class and i would show him a short story he'd go this is really really bad <laughs> i'd go really who says you know anything <laughs> so he'd go uh you know i know a few things and try to listen to me he said even if you you know you can't right now just hear what i'm saying mm -hmm. and he taught me about verb tense and point of view and things like that which he claimed you couldn't teach anybody he taught me and um you know i i guess Finally, the story becomes as much to me as the language. And I bet some people would fault me for that as a, as a poet, you know, but the compression in poetry is different than the compression in, say, fiction, for me, at least. Mm -hmm. And so I always love how tight you can get a poem if you work hard and stay with it a while. Yeah, to where it blows up, you know. Yeah, your style is interesting. Like, if you look at the death of the box turtle, uh, which we just read, um, it yeah. feels like you're sort of both trying to distract from the fact that you're reading a poem while also telling the story in, like, as tight and as, like, you know, poetic a way as possible. So it's exactly. a sort of weird combination. Like, your your line breaks um, are very sort of almost as if they're random. Like, you don't really yeah. have a lot of emphasis on the line to distract from the fact that you're, you're hearing a story, which I see, think seems um, an important part of your, your style. Yeah. I, if I 
if I have a style poem to poem, I think that's it. I think it's trying to find a way to sort of say, we're not really in a poem. You know, and the reason you do that, or at least I do, is because I think people will get a little bit too academic for the good of the story. You know, I may need to crack into an Appalachian, you know, you know, Roe, you know, or something like that. And it's not going to be, I, I won't be able to access it if I'm worried all the time about, um, you know, structure and, and mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and audience even. Yeah, you know, yeah. Take a risk, say, you know, mm-hmm. fuck it, I'm going to tell a hillbilly <laughs> story, you know. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you don't want the structure to get in the way. And, and in right. a way that's sort of right. a, a, maybe a better way to um, introduce poetry to newer readers of poetry, you know, where, where it doesn't feel so fancy. It's more about the storytelling. Um, Lee Martin here says that Roy is a storyteller with a poet's attention to language and image and music, which I think is the perfect way to put it. Um, so thanks right for on. that, Lee. Um, if anybody has any questions, um, I am following on YouTube and Twitter, so please do uh, leave them there. Or not YouTube and Twitter, YouTube and Facebook. I always get these confused. Uh, if YouTube and Facebook, and uh, leave your questions there, and I will pass them along for Roy. But uh, let's hear another poem, right? Sure. This one, this happens to be the first poem I ever wrote that I went, Man, I, I think that I actually might work. So this is from like 1983 or four. Um, it's called On the Diamond Behind Garfield Elementary. Melvin White Proves There Is But One Boob Pal. It's from this book, The uh-huh. this Big Sucker. Um, this is my new and selected, which came out about a year ago and got swallowed by the pandemic. Um, anyway, it's in here at some point, but I've got it um, printed off. Yeah, I'm, I'm more prepared now. I can, I can find the poems. I have all three books up now. While you were talking, I was, I was getting, I just completely forgot that I didn't have the, the books in the stack. Yeah, um, it's my fault. No, it's, so. it's mine. My, my, I, I went out of town and I haven't been to the office. I'm sure they're sitting there all at right. the office waiting for me, but, um, but I haven't been down. I didn't get a chance. Um, but anyway, I have this poem ready on the diamond behind Garfield Elementary, whenever you're, you're ready with that. Okay. When Dave Wheeler fielded the hard-won hopper to short, he fired the ball to Melvin White, forgetting the huge first baseman moved like molasses. Melvin caught it on his sternum. You could hear the breath escaping all the way to center field. Falling in love is like that, begging air as the infield laughs hysterically. You could be dying, blue and big as Melvin White. It could be spring and the woman married. She could be dark and fine as air the hour after rain. Still, they would double over laughing, the pain getting worse. And after she had gone, you would catch her scent. Imagine strong, small hands having apricots as you fall face first, runner advancing. Of course, eventually the pain would ease. You would stand. It would be important that the game go on. You would recall a score, how far behind you were when it hit. Only this bright burning in the lungs. Yeah. And that was uh, on the diamond behind Garfield Elementary. Melvin White proves there is but one Boog Powell uh, yeah. from uh, my mother's red. Um, what is it? My mother's red. Yeah, my mother's red Ford. My mother's red Ford. From Lost Horse. Yeah. Out in Idaho. So what was it like putting out so many books during the pandemic? I mean, it must be rough. Oh, it I mean, sucked. Yeah. It sucked. <laughs> <laughs> right, were you able friends, to do 
Yeah. Were you able right. to do anything to promote them? I mean, it just, it's just such a tough time for you know, everybody, but for poets, too. Well, unfortunately, the pandemic also caused me to want to stay in the house and not travel much. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm lucky there is a thing like this, you know, like Zoom, so that I can get the word out a little bit. And people maybe, you know, uh, hunt with me. Friends seem to keep track of what you're doing, you know, if you get one out there. And they know it's not my fault that they come out, you know, uh, the way they do. I mean, I, I was lucky this one happened to win a prize while this other one was supposed to be uh, in galleys with uh, Main Street Rag. So I, you know, I I, I can't be responsible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it makes it you seem very prolific that you've got three books out. It does. Out it looks the- <laughs> like I, that's all I do, and um, I think yeah, I do a lot more than that. I, I smoke pot. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, do you, do you write every day? How much do you write? And, like, what is your process yeah. like? I write every day. I probably, I pull up the chair about 10 o'clock at night, work till two, catch some sleep, get up in the morning. And if um, I'm feeling the need to justify my existence, I'll do another four hours. I, I've always felt like six, to six, somewhere around six hours a day, if you can stand oh, wow. it, you know, and, um, and take weekends off mm-hmm. and then throw some shit away. Uh-huh. You know, because a lot of the shit you write is 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 really that, is just shit. As you know, I've sent you some things that, <laughs> you know, I was embarrassed later when I got it back. I went, God, I sent him that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't take it too too personally, but um, I know, but. <laughs> But it's interesting you said uh, poetry justifying your existence, which is kind of yeah, what yeah. it does. In a way. It's, it's almost like a statement to the universe that, like, I'm here and I'm alive and I've witnessed these things and have these thoughts. Um, yeah. Where do you think you would be without poetry? I mean, what, oh, what would you be doing if you weren't a poet? I'd be dead. I mean, I, I, I would have to have some kind of art. You know, and I couldn't, seriously, I couldn't draw, paint sculpt i couldn't use my hands for anything other than like you know mitts you know i mean my typing was even disgusting i was a typist in the service and they they were just knocked out by how bad i was you know (laughs) i cheated my way through school (laughs) well uh, typing typing school yeah (laughs) well let's hear another poem what do you want to read next this one, I this one keeps cropping up for me, and it says you must deal with me. And um, I had a copy over here. This is uh, Buzz Aldrin on the moon. And I, when I wrote this poem, I was trying to come to grips with some of those American icons that you go, what does that mean? You know. Well, anyway, this is called Buzz Aldrin, American astronaut stands next to the stars and stripes on the moon, and it is in this big. My mother's red Ford. It's um. It should be in the the new poems section. Okay, I got it. All right. It's like third, fourth poem, I think. Neil Armstrong of Wapakoneta, Ohio, is out of the shot. This is Buzz and Old Glory. They'd killed our favorite Irish Catholic president, JFK. Taught him about riding around and. In Lincoln limos in Stetson Hatted, Texas. Cronkite is doing a voiceover. Same voice as that day in Dallas when a whole world held its breath, then wept. By hopping around, Aldrin is affirming America's right to swaddle the globe in the rhetoric of manifest destiny. 
Nixon phones Apollo 11 live and in prime time, so Buzz stops moving, though it's his show and remarkable terrain. Supposedly, he is trying not to upstage the presidential call, not to say what any Presbyterian elder might, having given himself holy communion from a secret kit he stowed away. This moonscape could be the slow-changing light of Kiev, a bullying Russian winter, a harvest of unhappiness, hunger. Over Aldrin's shoulder, it's a desperate planet. Golda Meir is down there asserting the rights of the state of Israel over Palestinians, consenting to sanctioned killings which, when taken together, make a nation. Go ahead, Buzz. Bust some goofy dance move like it's the first sock hop on the moon. And that was uh, Buzz Aldrin, American astronaut stands next to the stars and stripes on the moon. And that is from My Mother's Red Ford. Uh, the new and selected poems uh, by Roy Bentley that just came out recently. Um, you know, six hours a day is really impressive for, for writing. I mean, I don't know if any, um, I, I haven't talked to, I don't think, any poets in these first 104 episodes that are that dedicated, maybe. So it makes uh, sense that you come out with poetry. At the yeah, sort but I of... can't do anything else. <laughs> well, you, you teach, too, right? You're a professor? I used to. I uh-huh. used to. Yeah, I've gotten a little bit older in the last three years. I, I, well, actually, five. I haven't taught in five years. Mm-hmm. And I, God bless teaching, but I, you know, I didn't miss it. Uh, it was getting to be where it was a divided country and the whole uh, watching Fox News thing. You know, your students would call you on things once in a while and you'd have mm-hmm. to go, uh, let's don't talk about that or, <laughs> or whatever. You know, down in Florida, Obama was getting elected and we had some issues. And I, you know, I, it's strange. You get caught right in the middle of it, you know, mm-hmm. as a teacher. Yeah. You want to tell the truth as you see it, and that may not be uh, what people want to hear, you know. Yeah. That, that's interesting. So you had, like, like Fox News viewers as students who had this kind of— big part of Florida seemed to mm-hmm. me young people seemed like their parents either watched Fox News or, or they drifted into it. But I'd get a lot of uh, people talking, you know, and you could tell it was talking points from— Fox News, though I I rarely watch it. Yeah, that, that that's interesting because um you know poets it seems are, are, are very liberal oriented and um it, you see very few conservative poems and so yeah. did, did any of those students end up becoming poets? Or no, when I talk creative writing down there, it was like I don't know, it's like they were playing a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and um, God bless that. I mean, maybe they play their way to to Karen or they're just better readers. You mm-hmm. know, not everybody winds up a writer. My mother even said once she hated that I had become a writer because she watched it. And she said, you're clearly tortured. Yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, does it look that bad? And she goes, well, that's all you think about. That's all you talk about. Why don't you mellow out? You know, why don't you run or something? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she so- is right. Yeah. So, uh, so how did you, do you feel like teaching to students? Like what, what advice did you have for them? And, um, and, and what, I mean, I don't Depending know. On where I was teaching. If I was teaching at Denison where I had, um, a certain sway over the students, you know, where you could say, you know, I'm, I want you to do this. I want you to read these 800 pages by tomorrow. And they would, <laughs> 
Or if I was teaching at a, at a technical college where everybody was like me, they'd go, hell with you. <laughs> <laughs> I may or may not read 800 pages by tomorrow. Um, it, it depended on where you taught. It really did. Mm-hmm. And I was okay with it being all kinds of different levels, you know, of adults. It's just fascinating. I taught in a prison for a while, you know, and mm-hmm. medium security, though. Yeah. And um, that was interesting. You know, I never heard so many excuses in my life, you know, for what, uh-huh. how things went wrong. Yeah, yeah. We get submissions from prison, too, and that's the, the general gist of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I don't know. Um, this this poem we have here is in the current issue. Um, it's an Appalachian Poets issue. Um, do you want to just talk yes. a little bit about that? Because I, I think it's it's one of my favorite issues we've done. Because um, yeah. Appalachian Poets are such great storytellers. And um, they always have something to say that you don't hear every day. Even that last, you know, the poem about baseball, you don't get that many poems about baseball, actually. You don't get poems about these kind of characters that you write about. Right. Um, do you want to talk about just your influence um, being from Appalachia and, um, and what that means to you? You know, a lot of my influences are not the ones you'd think. There's a, you know, there's a standard Appalachian canon that I'm aware of, but that I would have to say a lot of the stuff that, um, that I write, I'm simply hearing my parents and my, and my people, you know, talk granny, you know, telling me all about, you know, hellfire and, uh, scaring the hell out of me as a kid. Uh, I, I really wish I could have a conversation with her now and say, you know, are you really sure about that hell place? I mean, what's the zip code on that? <laughs> yeah. I'd have to taunt her a little. She was funny though. She let me watch stuff on flying saucers. And I this I want to read you this one. There is a case for interplanetary saucers. Okay. Uh, which book is that in? This is out of the out of Hillbilly Gill. Okay. Yeah. I'll find it really quick. It's on page forty-four. Okay. There is a case for interplanetary saucers. Life magazine, April seventh, nineteen fifty-two. That's what it says in the upper right-hand corner of a 20-cent copy of Life magazine, the one with Marilyn on the cover, a white-lettered caption reading, The Talk of Hollywood. Sixty years later, I failed to see the relationship between Marilyn Monroe and interplanetary saucers. I do see that she smolders like an exploding H-bomb in a strapless evening gown. If what we mean by alien is not of this planet, that's her. And I see that a free market promise of sex with strangers is why America's the best country in the world in 1952. Albert Einstein has refused the presidency of Israel. Ban roll-on deodorant is introduced. MCML11, a leap year. It's a year of flying saucers and sex, cars and cigarettes, Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea has come out, and Steinbeck's East of Eden. We can and do read. But if the world looks to America, America's looking at the skies or the silver screen. Or Gary Cooper in High Noon in 1952. Harry Truman is in charge. Give them hell, Harry. We're a nation of lusty men who mentally undress wet dream worthy starlets. Women with unrealistic expectations of themselves. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz are telling us smart young Americans are changing to Philip Morris. 
Why don't you? Some of us are Cold War McCarthyites, piloting starships named Buick and Plymouth and Ford, hitting the gas and heading for three-bedroom homes with backyard clotheslines, and no need to question being American. Dwight Eisenhower hasn't been elected, but he will be. Mother Teresa's about to open the home for dying and destitute in Calcutta, and war rages in Korea. Planet Earth is one heartless place in 1952. Aliens may want to watch it. They might want to keep going, explore someplace else. And that was, uh, there is a case for interplanetary saucers, a timely poem because, uh, you know, there's all those, that saucer news or the, the yeah. objects. What do you think? Do you think there are, uh, Oh yeah, they're here. They're here. Yeah. <laughs> they're here. How, how long do you think they've been here? Do, do you believe the, uh, like, what do you Since just think 1954. about 1954. You think, do you think it was the nuclear bomb that they brought them to check it out? That's the one theory I keep hearing. If everybody would just go, <laughs> he has no idea. Whatever he says, it's just what he thinks. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what I want. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know. I, I One time when I was a little kid in Dayton, I was about six or seven, and something beside my bed looked like one of those E.T. things. Years later, I saw the shape and went, that, that's what was mm-hmm. beside my bed. But I don't trust my own memory. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever had any uh, you know, contact with, with aliens. I think I was a little goofy uh-huh. as a kid, you know. Yeah, well, I can relate to that. I actually, um, you know, I, I have a insomnia problems and like I sleep really yeah. lightly. Like, I have really low melatonin levels. And uh, and so I sleepwalk. I'm always jumping out of bed thinking there's like a snake under my boot or whatever. And uh, when I was a kid, like a teenager, um, I used to sleepwalk, like seriously sleepwalk, um, you know, like around like maybe age 14. And sometimes my dad would wake me up outside. Like I'd be like wandering around outside. And when I uh, heard, I watched like on, you know, it was when the time when the History Channel started doing all the UFOs and alien abduction stuff. And at one point I was like, oh my God, I'm being abducted by aliens at night. And, I really, <laughs> <laughs> and for a little while I was like, That's like good. I got goosebumps. I was like, oh my God, is that what's going on? I keep waking up oh, outside. Shit. And, um, but then eventually I realized that I just sleepwalk. And yeah. I wonder how much you, you know, that those stories are that, but. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's great. No, I, um, I, I'm pretty sure I was a little stressed by, you know, their divorce. and mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, they, it was the same. My parents were going through divorce at the same time, too. So that was probably yeah. a lot. To do. And the, the whole teenage stress, too. And sure. puberty and all those things were just... Hair. Exactly, yeah. Down there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so this poem yeah. and others we've already seen, are, you have a lot yeah. of uh, pop references in your books. Um, yeah. You know, you, you really situated in the time and place that you do a lot of musical references to. Um, Is there a reason that you do that? I, you know, sometimes I feel like you're privileged to get to mention some of these things and these people because, you know, you grow up with them like Muhammad Ali or, you know, uh, some of the boxers that I've always admired. And, and um, other, other people like, um, well, son of a bitches, you get to say something awful about, and I like that, Nixon. I like that I get to say stuff about him over and over because he was, he was scary. He was real scary. And um, people act like, you know, Trump was like him or whatever. I go, yeah, yeah, that's what he was like. Yeah, yeah. He was a whack job. Yeah, I think they both and have he, narcissistic personality disorder is my, my yeah. armchair diagnosis of both of them. 
yeah, why do you want to be the king of the world if you don't like the world? Yeah, yeah. And if you love it, sure, hell. But in, anyway, I in this book, I noticed that a lot of the mistakes we make become the important part of the the heart of a bunch of these poems. And I'm uh, I'm amazed that I'm OK with making mistakes, really, you know, that I found it to be um, like something we have to do. Mm -hmm. And so um almost don't apologize for it. You know, some of the stories I tell, I look bad. Yeah, yeah. I look terrible in a couple. I mean, I go, wow, you should maybe not, shouldn't write that. Now <laughs> <laughs> your mom, you know. Do, do you ever, uh, you know, choose not to publish something that you wrote because of that or, or for any reason yeah. or, yeah? Yeah, I, I took back about four or five over me and dad. We had a bad run of it and I didn't think he deserved it. If there should be anybody reading it in five years, I mm -hmm. don't think he deserves, you know, to be pilloried because I was an idiot. <laughs> or or a semi-idiot even mm -hmm. now this this one I, I want to try to maybe end with this Is, am I at the ending oh no we got a, we got like 15 20 minutes left oh good 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 yeah yeah but this poem this is the first one that um that uh, Jessica Faust at um the Southern Review took that like you when somebody like that takes a poem I go ape shit crazy <laughs> happy and this one was one of those, except she made 46 changes on this poem. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said, are you sure you still want it? <laughs> and she was right on every one of them. It's amazing. And I learned an enormous amount. Anyway, this poem's called Sunday Afternoon at the Midland Theater in Newark, Ohio. Slouched in a theater seat and watching Bullet for the third time, a look I get from an usher might best be described as granting a general amnesty and full pardon for my having shelled out only the one admission price. There's the balcony with its blue and red curved seatbacks. By a door to the upstairs men's room, a framed likeness of the Civil War drummer boy, Johnny Clem, whose baby-faced looks and sudden dark hair remind me of a young Italian, then Salminio, in Rebel Without a Cause. There's that angels in the architecture grand gesture of a ceiling, the wall of drapes of eloquently pleated purple, and there's the screen framed in its filigree of gold and silver. The usher is accommodating me by simply not noticing. I'm on my third popcorn, third enormous Coca-Cola, second box of milk duds, when I realize I'm happy, elated, in Ohio at 14, you're disappointed most of the time, so I want to tell Frank Bullitt just how it feels to be from Dayton and new here, a fat kid eighth grader at Fulton Middle School. But then Steve McQueen is French kissing Jacqueline Bissett good morning, strapping on a shoulder holster and 38 pistol. Now he's stopped at the corner of Clay and Taylor, searching the pockets of his trench coat, suit coat for change. I've loved that look all afternoon. The usher reacts as if that says it, that fuck the world expression of Frank Bullitt as he gives up and bangs the cover and steals a newspaper. Turns out 1968 isn't for the faint of heart. You need a Mustang GT 390, ice water for a blood type, 
a tolerance for the visages of the dead you made dead, slaughtering out of that old American purity of motive that dissolves into a communion of terrific car chases wherein thunderous algorithms of horsepower rule. Yeah, oh, that's Saturday afternoon at the Midland Theater in Newark, Ohio, for my mother's Red Ford. Um, just another of those poems that just roll out with the images and just so much detail. Like you're sort of like overwhelmed in this space of detail in your poems where you're just transported back into the, the memories that you're writing from. It reminds me, too, of who was it that said, um, if you lived into adulthood, you have enough content to be a writer for the rest of your life? That's um, right. Um, it's hard to remember, like, like think about my own childhood as having as much, many stories as you seem to come up with. How, um, how much, I don't know, what, what is the role of poetry in memory and how accurate do you try yeah, yeah, and yeah. make it? it? Do you remember these things as you're writing them and like more details kind of come out of the depths of your mind? How, how does it, how does People it come back help. to you? People help. I mean, Jessica Faust actually corrected this poem. The, it wasn't Milk Duds the first time, it was something else. Mm-hmm. And um, she she suggested milk duds, and then and she said the reason was it was available at the time and blah blah blah. So sometimes you'll mess it up uh, by the candies that I picked then were not available then. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So your your memory is creatively compressing other times you went to the movies. So if somebody helps you and fixes it, far out. You know. Mm-hmm. But if they don't, I mean, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, it's. I want. I just want to say that I only think I'm one of many who are trying to do it, and mm-hmm. that my way of doing it is. I wouldn't recommend it for anybody else. <laughs> I swear to God. I hear Walter saying, "I sure as hell can't teach you how to do this." Mm-hmm. You know, and I. I think my way of doing it. I need help. I mean, she 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 came at that poem, like I said, with forty six changes. Mm-hmm. Would I mean, think about it? You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, you wouldn't uh-huh. do that. Yeah, you would say, "Forget about it." <laughs> yeah, um, it's beautiful. I don't know. I, I think uh, you you have a line I saw somewhere where you said, "I try not to dilute reality," which is another yeah, good yeah. way of putting what you do. I mean, it, it's so yeah. not diluted. It's so all there in your poems. I, I don't know if I'm maximalist is is a is a phrase i've heard used before um I like that. Uh, but but you do include so much detail that, that you're really sent to the to the place and usually it's back to that 60s and 70s era um yeah. and sort of like a chronicle of, of growing up at that time um yeah yeah the history part of my poems is i would say it's accurate to a point mm-hmm you know, and then there will be places where you had to fudge it for a theme or something, um, or you just didn't want to tell that whole story on somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, like one of your friends did something and you just want to take it out or yeah. whatever. I mean, I think you should in a way. I mean. Yeah, I always think of it as like um, there's a difference between truth and facts, you know? Yes. And that you don't have to be factually accurate as long as it's true to what you're writing about. Right. And sometimes it's a better story if it's not factually accurate, but more truthful in the way that you tell it. Right. So, so, um, you know, it's the details that bring it alive. Um, I don't know. Yeah, When you say that, when Mm -hmm. you said details that bring it alive, it brings me to this story about my old man who was, um, he's always didn't like my poems for some Mm -hmm. reason. Like he might come off badly in them. Mm -hmm. 
And he does sometimes, but not as badly as he thinks or as, you know, awfully as he thinks. Anyway, um, he said one time, you never get the cars right. <laughs> and he made me a list. He, this was like a week before he died of all the cars and motorcycles he had ever owned. Mm -hmm. And he wrote it out by hand. Wow. And, you know, and he, I, it's in my wallet right now. It's it's laminated. And that way I can go through and go, oh, that was a 56 Eldorado. I got it. Mm -hmm. He didn't want the model or the make, you know, the number of the year or anything screwed up. Yeah. Why, why do you think that was important to him? I think he felt like if you're going to tell the, the truth and you're going to try to tell the truth, this is going to be my signal that you're trying. Mm -hmm. oh, and that way, if I said something icky, you know, that they had done or I had heard them say or something, um, I'd show him a poem if I had negative information in it, you know, and he'd say, you know, I wish you wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say, but I got to, you know, I got to tell that story and, and we'd negotiate sometime. Mm -hmm. And when he, when he died, I just, I decided I wouldn't write anything too awful, you know, cause I don't want him coming back and, you know, scaring the hell out of me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you mentioned earlier that one of the poems that you published had a lot of edits too from the editor. Uh, yeah. Is that something you come across much? Because I don't find myself editing very many people very often. I mean, sometimes they're like the beginning you know, more introduces it too me. much, and the end, you know, the end yeah. goes on too far. Those are two things that kind of happen where the heart of the poem is still is still great, but there's just a little yeah. too much preamble or a little too much telling in the conclusion but otherwise yeah. i don't find you know because you just get so many submissions that that yeah. once you have a poem to publish i mean i don't know and, and i wonder if maybe it's me you know my failing and i should be more hands-on with the poems but i feel like like once Ow. that you rise up past everybody like who am i to say is kind of my I, I view as an editor which is not other people's view and, and that's fine but uh but i don't yeah, edit yeah. much do, do you I feel agree. like you do do you like get feedback like that from from editors and, and change very often or is that rare? You know, I've been I've been at this a long time. I'm, I've been publishing poems over thirty five years, mm -hmm. um, and I, that even sounds you know harsh. I mean, just to say it out loud, you know, someone's been publishing that long, and it's not dead. You know, at the moment, mm -hmm. um, I think that I I don't know why in the world. You wouldn't expect somebody to correct you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? To go, I challenge this line. Yeah. You know, I've, when I was 20, I wrote a, a poem and it had this line in it said, um, the body deserts us, but not today. Well, a 20 year old saying that 26, 27 years old ought to be smacked in the back of the head. <laughs> you know, I'm 40 years older than that now. And I definitely know the body deserts us but but maybe not all of it today mm -hmm. um i don't know i don't know i just expect to be corrected yeah yeah well uh i don't know that there's some um i don't know there's a few times that like certain lines are just off uh, but but for the most yeah. part i mean i don't know poets seem to know what they're doing um do you do much revising yourself uh, oh yeah that? yeah those six hours are not working on new poems normally they're poems like this one um that we just heard revised for six or seven years mm -hmm. so there are those kind of poems and then and then someone giving you 46 you know corrections on top of that 
I mean, and I just, I'm grateful because that poem then, you know, if I don't tell that story, the poem's just out there and, you know, my name's on it and mm -hmm. I'm cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thank you for the editorship. And I, I mean, my God, that level of editing. You could do that. I'm guaranteeing you. Mm -hmm. you the, the reason they don't do it, I'm sure, is the time factor. Yeah. I mean, she probably had a couple of hours in that poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like, um, I don't know, like like when you're presented with a poem that works, it's, it's kind of rare, and then it yeah. works, and I don't want to mess with it, you know? I hear you, I hear you. Like, uh, maybe yeah. it's just the, the volume. Like, maybe if we had fewer poems submitted, I would want to, yeah. like, polish up the ones that were close more often than I do. Um, but, but when they work, it feels like they work, and I feel like it's I, like... Um, um, I don't know. Something that, that I wanted to talk more about was that, yeah. that concept you had before of being an engineer or being a mechanic rather than an yeah. engineer. Um, and, and what you what you mean by that? What, like, what does that mean to be a mechanic of poetry instead of an engineer? Yeah. I mean, to me, an engineer, like a Merwin or somebody, I've, I've heard him talk, to where they can schematize a poem. They know what that poem what the points of interest are and where you should come back to something you raised and come back to this other thing you raised. And I, I call it a schematic, but it means to me that they, they see the elements as they have to be linked. They have to, you know, for this short space in time called a poem, they should be linked and then they should pay off. You know, like if there's a gun in the first stanza, it better go off or something and real important happened. Of course, those same rules apply in fiction. Mm -hmm. Just the compression seems to be so much tighter, you know, in um, in a poem. I can give you a specific example. Uh, that Ringo Starr poem that y you published, the point at which in that poem we say, uh, on the order of being hired as the, you know, dumb luck, on the order of being hired as the Beatles drummer. Mm -hmm. To compare the luck of having a soul, you know, if we do, mm -hmm. yeah. um, that it's like you'd be tapped to be the drummer for the Beatles and you'd pull it off, you know, like Ringo did. I mean, um, there's something about that, that only a mechanic, someone who is just in the poem rather than schematicizing it idea wise yeah. mm -hmm. discovers mm -hmm. that was a lucky, fortunate line. Yeah. And that's why I put dumb luck right before it, you know, because the signal to me forever. Oh, remember when you got that line? Uh, it was dumb luck. You know? uh -huh. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like you're in, you know, in the grease, in the engine working on it. Yeah. Instead of instead of diagramming the blueprints for how it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I see Nothing that against yeah. that. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Nothing against that. I yeah, wish I could sure. read blueprints. You know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Merwin's great. It's interesting to think of him that way. I hadn't really put it, you know, thought of it that way in, in my head, but that's a really interesting way to put it. Um, yeah. One last question, then we'll do one last poem, I think. Um, people okay. always want to know, um, you know, suggestions for poets um, to read. Who do you like to read? Like, like what poet, what, uh, what poet sort of turned you on and, and made you, you know, knock your socks off that you just couldn't get enough of? Lately, this one. Uh -huh. This is um, Half Life by Jane Ann Fuller. Yeah, that's great because I've never heard of Jane Ann Fuller. Oh, yeah. She's an Appalachian mm -hmm. uh, poet. 
And um, this, I read that in one sitting. I was like knocked out by that. People like that, contemporaries get me a lot more than, you know, old dead poets. Mm -hmm. um, songwriters seem to get me more often than a lot of writers, you know. But um, I read The New Yorker a lot. I read everything you send me. I read, you know, um, I've got a thing here of ungodly amount of, you know, of uh, literary reviews that mm -hmm. I read over and over and I find just delightful stuff in. Um, I used to tell my students, though, get you one of those, subscribe to it and put it on the back of your toilet. Yeah. It will yeah. fit on the toilet tank. You can go in there. <laughs> And you can read it, you know. Yeah, that's the thing about poetry is it's the perfect length. Um, yes. You know, my uh, I was just in, on vacation visiting in-laws, and they have this um, on the back of their thing. They have some toilet trivia book or whatever. But I was actually <laughs> just thinking about that because you know a poem is sort of the perfect length for reading on the on the toilet. I wonder. I mean, maybe the um, no one wants to say that because it's not a a fun way to think about poetry. But it is a great idea to put put poetry on the back there. I hear you. Um, so anyway, what poem do you want to finish off with, Roy? That Ringo Starr poem, which yeah, is sure. one of my luckiest moves in my life. Ringo Starr answers questions on Larry King Live about the death of George Harrison. And, and which book is that in? That's in uh, that's in this this okay. new and selected one. That's on page one sixteen, one seventeen. Okay, I'll find it's it. It's in the in the um, yeah, section. I got it. I got it. Ringo's easy to find. Yeah. Cool, cool. First, Larry King mistakenly calls Ringo George, then asks him whether his passing, George's, was expected. He answers that it was. Says they knew he was sick, had lung cancer. I'm watching, though it's none of my business how grief-stricken Ringo Starr was, and likely still is, or whether he was there at the bedside at the moment George left his life for some other if you can believe what George believed, which was that we keep coming back till we get it right. And when Ringo is about to let down his guard and be a bit more self-disclosing, even honest, Larry interrupts asking, do you ever want to pinch yourself? And Ringo Starr says, sure. In 1988, years before, in another interview with George, this years after Lennon's death, Ringo confessed that he was the poorest Beatle then laughed and blew cigarette smoke upward, which must have seemed terribly funny to George, an inside joke because he said, hello, John, to the smoke like it was Lennon by virtue of his unacknowledged wealth or some spirit he used to conquer worlds with. Ringo says he was shocked upon hearing the news of the death of John Lennon, but that George's death was another thing entirely. He doesn't quote from the Bhagavad Gita, but it's as if he wants to say we continue on. Are these spirits, a sort of outrageous bliss even to think it, dumb luck on the order of being hired as the Beatles drummer? Maybe he would have said it with respect to George or ventured his own beliefs if Larry hadn't butted in to ask him which of the Beatles was the best musician. You mean now? And I want to laugh now because maybe Ringo's imagining how hard it is to move your hands after you're dead or to move it all and how impossible it must be to keep time and tempo in all that anonymous blankness. The dark become 
your most imploring fan. Yeah, excellent poem. I just love that when Ringo Starr answers questions on Larry King Live about the death of George Harrison. <laughs> and I remember after um, after yeah. reading that poem and, and you know accepting it, I, I looked up uh, and watched the actual interview, which is just as you described it. I mean, people should go look yeah. at that. Um, it's a gas. It really is, but such a great metaphor for life, or something, or how maybe we view ourselves, or something. It's just a, it's a great poem. Um, and thank you. Yeah, thank thanks you. for sharing that, and all the others too, and everything else, Roy. Right it's, it's great talking to you and getting to know you better. You too, man. I'm in it. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good night. Hi, right, you too. Bye. Thanks, folks. Yes, yeah, so that was Roy Bentley with uh, a bunch of books. He's got um, my mother's red Ford. Uh, which is the new and selected book that he was reading uh, mostly from, then Hillbilly Guilt. Um, he's also the author of American Loneliness, Body of a Deer by a Creek in Summer, Walking with Eve in the Loved City. These are great titles, too. So I'm just going to read about Starlight, Taxi, The Trouble with a Short Horse in Montana, Any One Man, and Boy in a Boat. And uh, Ray's one of those poets that uh, I can't direct you to a website, so you're going to have to look up these books somewhere. But just type in Roy Bentley and Hillbilly Guilt, or uh, Roy Bentley and Mother's Red Ford to find the new and selected. And uh, you can get those from Amazon and all that. He publishes on a, different, a lot of different presses and doesn't have a lot of social media. So it's really great to finally meet and get to know Roy a little bit. And uh, I'm really glad he could be here with us to do that. Uh, now we're going to move on to the open lines. And um, the prompt for this week, let me find it really quick. The prompt was to write a nonce uh, form, write your own form of poetry. So a nonce form is one you make up yourself. Um, uh, make up your own nonce form and write a poem using it. Be sure to include a short explanation of the rules. That was the um, the prompt for this week. Uh, but if you have anything else you'd like to share, um, you can share poems about that prompt. You can share poems about the news. You can share poems you've published recently and are proud of. We can highlight other magazines. Whatever you would like to do in the next hour or so, which is the open lines, I'll put up the... Uh, instructions on the screen right now but all you have to do is email your poems right now to open mic at rattle.com that's open mic at rattle.com then pick the way that you would like to call in if you'd like to be on video it's a skype call to rattle poetry all one word just uh, put rattle poetry into the search bar on skype and wave and say hi i'll wave back and you will be on the call list um if you would rather do it by phone the phone number is 818-850-7727 that's 818-850-7727. Just uh, let it ring a few times, then hang up, and I will call you back. Anybody who calls right now, I assume, wants to share a poem, so I will just call you back when it's your turn. And um, that is what we're going to do. I'm going to put up some music and take a quick break and um, get these poems and things set up. So we'll see you in a little bit. I'm back. Thanks so much for a little extra patience than normal. I was uh, opening up my open mic at rattle.com account, and they asked me if I wanted to open in a new Chrome profile. And I thought, oh, what's that? Maybe I'll click on it while I'm live on a show. And apparently what that does is let you not actually access it. So I had to log out and then log back in. But we're good here. So we have a bunch of people lined up who would like to share poems. Um, let's see. Um, and who, let's see, well, first we'll start with the, uh, Megan's and my poem. Now, I did not write, well, I wrote, like, half of a, um, 
my own made up form and I loved it and I didn't want to like half ass the rest of it. So I'm going to share it next week because I didn't have time. We've been on vacation all week and I didn't really have time to, um, to finish the poem. And I actually kind of like it. I like what I'm doing with it. So I'm going to debut that next week and maybe we'll do two poems next week. I did on the, um, on the plane on the way back from Oregon, write, uh, wrote some haiku about our vacation. So maybe I'll share those. We went up to Bend, Oregon, uh, which I just love, you know, we love hiking, and um, and nature and up in that area around um, uh, the Newberry Crater um, and and all that stuff. There's just so much great both nature and geology. It's just so fun hiking through so many different landscapes with waterfalls and lava tubes and things. And uh, we went hiking on one of my favorite um, little hikes is the um, uh, Big Obsidian Flow, which is this like um, I don't know. It's maybe it's hundreds of feet high. Um, just pile of um, black glass, volcanic obsidian that cooled rapidly into glass and then fractured up. And uh, we hiked through there. Um, we did some other stuff too. So here's some haiku about our, my, our vacation that I wrote. These are the ones I liked from the, the series I wrote on the plane. I, I just spent the whole plane writing haiku uh, on the way back, which was fun. Everybody else was asleep. And here are some haiku from our little vacation. Let me get rid of Roy for a second. Uh, so here are my vacation haiku. Another year felt on the antler. Another year felt on the antler. As a one-line haiku for some deer that we came across. Baggage claim. A raccoon passes on the shoulder. Baggage claim. A raccoon passes on the shoulder. Every light at the tip of the airplane's wing. Every light at the tip of the airplane's wing. Of history, only the shards remain obsidian. Of history, only the shards remain obsidian. A bee drinking spilled, drinking, a bee drinking beer spilled in the dry grass, everything golden. A bee drinking beer spilled in the dry grass, everything golden. And the last one, Marco Polo until the sky plays too. Marco Polo until the sky plays too. And that was our vacation, you can imagine, um, our vacation in haiku. And uh, this was Megan's, and Megan's actually did the thing. She, you know, I had a bunch of stuff I had to do this morning. And then I had a softball game, which we lost nine to nothing. So that was disappointing. But I didn't have time when we got back, and, and we were too busy during the time. But Megan spent a, a good chunk of the day writing a haiku or at least some of the day, a little bit of time today. And uh, this was, not haiku, um, a nonce poem. And this is Megan's nonce form that she made up. Let me show you this. I call this form, this is Megan saying this, I call this form inditro, the Italian word for backwards. There's nothing Italian about it. I'm just trying to sound fancy. And so Megan's form here is uh, four line stanzas. There's four of them with an A, B, A, B, you know, CD, CD rhyme scheme. So the rhymes alternate like that with new rhymes in each stanza. And then there's, it's syllabic with the first line with one, two, three, four syllables. And then, uh, and then it goes down the other way. So at the end of the poem, it's four syllables, then three, then two, then one. So this is Megan's form, which she is calling an in vitro for Italian for backwards. And here it is. This is Megan's poem, Morning Grief. Each pale dawn, now I reach for what is gone. Find the dust left behind, and in disgust rise from our bed, brew coffee, 
you're dead. Me, I pace this place, these still rooms, your face looms. There's Megan's in detro, morning grief. Um, you can hear the syllabics and the rhymes there. Very interesting form. Um, now let's see what you have for us. We have um, Carla Schwartz, Zachary Honeycutt. We have a 646 number. Uh, we have Mike Bales. We have Nivedita Karthik. Um, let's see. Yes, yeah, so Nivedita Karthik. We have Karen Warinsky. Uh, Melody Wang. We have Richard Westheimer. We have a 312, which I think is uh, Ted um, Guevara's sister. would like to read his poem form. So let's see. Let's start first with... Um, Let's start first with, uh, let's see. Let's start first with Nivedita. See if we get to her before her uh, workday starts. We haven't had Nivedita in a little bit. Hey, Nivedita, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, thank you. So I'm not on video today, but I'm actually sitting at the airport waiting for my flight. So. Oh, great. Well, I'm glad I you just... could join us anyway. Um, how, how, are things, so yeah, yeah, how are things going in India? I was kind of wondering, um, you know, because the... You know, when we would talk to you a lot uh, a few, like, a month or two ago, um, mm. the, the pandemic was crazy there. And, it, uh, it's, it's actually it, getting much better now because, I, I mean, there are still places in which there is vaccine shortage. But then there are many people who have gotten the vaccine. So it's, it's, it's not spreading as fast all over the place. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a few isolated pockets here and there. But apart from that, it's, it's mostly life's back to normal. Of course, schools and colleges will are planning to start from this term, which probably is around July, August here. That's when our summer holidays ends mm-hmm. and the new year starts. So yeah. some schools and colleges are starting then. So it's it's slowly getting back to normal. And it's by no means as bad as it was probably around the beginning of this year or even Feb, March when I was telling you. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely much better now. Yeah. So what I wanted to ask, like what you think it is, because I see the numbers on like the, the world meter charts and stuff, and it peaked mm-hmm. in, in early May this new mm-hmm. wave. But did anything change? Like, like what caused it? Because the population is so huge. And according to the numbers, um, y- you know, it should be running through even more. So what was it that slowed down the, the spread? Do you I think? think this time what happened was that since we've already gone through two waves, people were more aware of it. Mm-hmm. And second, it's so even now, like there are containment zones here in India, but what the governments, state governments are doing is, once they find out that sort of in an area you have about 20, 30 people affected, they sort of preemptively make it a containment zone so as to stop the spread. So I think that's what is helping. Now they're not waiting for it to reach the numbers it needed to reach before in order to make it a containment zone. So they've sort of mm-hmm. tightened the rules a bit. So it's like as soon as they find out that, okay, there's going to be a cluster here, they sort of close it down and things like that. Yeah. That's, that's I think, what's helping this time around. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thanks and so much even for the insight. In May, when it yeah. spread, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't all over the country. Like, there were some places that were more affected, like these tier one cities where we have people traveling a lot, like Delhi, Chennai, Bombay, and things like that. But the other places weren't as affected, if, if that makes sense. Like, they had cases, but not as much as this. So, overall, this time, it's more clusters of infection rather than widespread throughout the country. So mm-hmm. I think that's what's helped bring the numbers down as fast as it did this time. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for sharing that insight. Cause you know, we're in the United States, we're going through sort of the panic of it, of it coming here, you know, the, the new mm-hmm. wave and, and, uh, and so it's, it's good yeah. to, to sort of hear what was working over there and how, how the curve was flattened once again and, and how we'll get through this too, maybe it over did. here. Yeah. 
Um, As always, we shall, this too shall pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I have your Knott's poem here. Do you want to, okay, um, do you want to start with that and explain what, what you did? Sure. Okay, so basically, I wrote a really small poem. I call it Quattro, which is Latin for four. Mm-hmm. So there are four stanzas, and each stanza has two lines. So the first stanza, the first line has one word, and the second line has three words. In the second stanza, it's sort of the reverse. Three words in one word. The third stanza is again like the first stanza, one word in three words. And the fourth stanza, you have two lines, each with two words. Sort of like Megan's, but not exactly. Like if it, I didn't go for syllable counts, but I went for word counts. Mm-hmm. So that's my non-spoem, and I call the form quattro, which is Latin for four. Perfect. Okay, well, let's hear this one. Okay, great. The worst thing about summer. Spring turns to summer. Pack your bags. Travel. Lazing by the pool. Hot chocolate season over. Excellent. Thanks so much if for you know me, that. I really love hot chocolate, so that's <laughs> hence the reason for this poem. It's not like I stopped drinking hot chocolate in summer, but it's just that the frequency gets reduced, so I'm like sad every time I need to take in less hot chocolate than before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that's great. Uh, let's hear, uh, you had another one for us too, right? Uh-huh. It's, as usual, a funny news story about a group of cockatoos that have now learned to open garbage can lids and are now getting their own meals, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see. Oh, that's a 30-second ad, so I can't play it. Uh, <laughs> but But we'll look at the... Pictures. Uh, yeah, there, there's so some pictures here. I'll put the pictures. pictures yeah. So it's basically the yellow-crested cockatoos. Mm-hmm. They sort of grab the lid with their beak and then shuffle back along the room all the way to the end, and then toss the lid open. And they basically found a way to get their own food. Oh wow! <laughs> and <laughs> scientists are like, so there was this group that actually first learned it from humans, and then the other cockatoos seeing them do it sort of learned. And now almost all cockatoos in Sydney, Australia, have learned how to open garbage can bins and get their own food. <laughs> oh wow, that's actually fascinating from like a, a science, you know, learning. Scientific. Yeah, I know. It really is that they could do that. Like, like learning by watching someone else do it is uh, impressive that it could spread that a, fast. And we call them bird brains. Like yeah. seriously? <laughs> yeah, well, that's funny. Well, I have a I wasn't going to do both of the the psyku I had today, but maybe I'll do both of them because that, that that relates <laughs> to the other one. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which actually has bird brain in there. She'll see at the end of the show. Ah, maybe I'll okay. do both this time. Um, oh, brilliant! I'm waiting for it. <laughs> so, uh, so let's hear. Uh, let's hear this. Been there, done that. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready. Okay. Been there, done that. What's next? The aerial trapeze artist has now acquired a new skill. For apparently, a golden yellow crown just did not suffice. Singing for my supper was a long-learned skill that now seems worthless because of this new drill. I can dance and get my own food now. I don't need you to feed me any chow. I do a downward dog and grasp the lid. With my beak, of course. Duh, how else? And then it's time. Play some music from about to show you some tricks. I do the electric slide all along the rim. And then a hop, skip and jump stick back. Eh, voila. The lid opens and there are treats inside. Now that that's done, I'm bored. And looking for the next thing I wish to win. Hmm. Perhaps it's time your car was floored. So... Clock to the pedal. I'll take it out for a spin. Excellent. Thanks so much for another great story to highlight with a poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nivedita. Thank you, Jamie. It's lovely talking to you as always. And yeah. good today. Yeah, yeah. Hope you have a great trip wherever you're going. Oh, thank you. Yep. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
Once again, that was Nivedita Karthik with uh, two poems, a poetry spawn poem. You can find the news story if you want to watch the video at uh, sky, or news.sky.com. Sydney Cockatoos work out how to open bin lids by watching others do the trick researchers say uh, with the video there. So thanks, as always, for that. Nivedita, oops, let me put the... Uh, Put the numbers on screen. So, so once again, if you'd like to call in, the number is 818-850-7727 or Skype me at Rattle Poetry, but not both because then um, then you will uh, – <laughs> I call you twice and that gets confusing too. And also I should say that um, turn off your uh, stream where you're watching this or at least mute it when I call you so that you're only talking to me through the phone and have the poem ready to read yourself because there's a 30-second there's a or so up to 30-second delay. Um, and so you can't read the poem off the screen and you can't talk to me like at the same time, it's not it's not that in sync, uh, so it gets confusing. Otherwise, let's call up. We have um, uh, first time caller, I believe, is uh, Gigi Capone. We'll do that. We'll uh, have Zachary Honeycutt. Um, let's call up a Mike Bales right now. Let's see what Mike Bales has for us. I'll find Mike's poem. Stop. No problem. How you doing, Mike? Pretty good. I haven't heard from you in a while. I've been watching the podcast a lot of weeks. Some yeah. nights I miss because I've been doing karaoke. Oh, that sounds fun. Like at a, at a bar type thing? Where do you do karaoke? Um, It's a bar. Yeah. There are bars around here all over the place to do it. Very cool. Uh, so what did you want to share with us tonight? Well, I wrote about... I listen to Iowa Public Radio a lot, so the idea is stream there, but I, I officially document something I out a little podcast from WI TV in Ames. It's about the smoke reaching the Midwest. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with themes I read about anyway. And it's called Ghosting. Yeah, let me uh, let me put it up. It's going to work. Uh, just one second. I have to switch to this one. Okay. Okay, so I have it here. Ghosting. Uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead. Okay, Ghosting. Smoke from fires out west cloud skies outside my window, a hazy doom. I hear a whisper and open the front door. Nobody's there. A neighbor's lawnmower drones early morning hours on the side street where I live. Someone who can barely breathe stays inside, yet I know life must go on. A bartender I know works alone, cleaning at a counter. I sit alone, feeling a passion burn, dreams of wanderlust, ribbons of highways, and wonders of force as they crowd the skies. It's the same story, but different names and places, a fauna and forest. People in silence tend their spreads of land. The landscape whispers as they live and die. A blanket of haze from distant fires of new and old growth ghosts the face of the sun. Oh, excellent. I love the ending. Uh, Mike Bell, thanks so much for sharing that. Okay, thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you on. It's been a while. Thanks, Mike. All right, bye. Bye. It was Mike Bales with Ghosting. Let's try this uh, 646 number and see who that is. Hey, uh, you are live on the air. Who am I talking to? This is Emma Goldman Sherman. I'm in New York. Ah, thanks so much for calling in. What do you have that you'd like to share with us tonight? Uh, witness Daniel Hale. And, and was this a poetry spawn poem? It was poets respond for this week because he was sentenced this week. And so I sent this in. Great. Do you want, do you want to tell us a little bit about, I'm trying to remember uh, what the details are for, for uh, Daniel Hale. What, what was he sentenced for? 
he was sentenced for blowing the whistle basically on the drone program as not being, you know, what they said it was, not mm-hmm. accurate, not clean, killing lots of civilians. And, you know, yeah. he was sentenced. And, and how long was he sentenced for? Do you remember? He got almost almost four years. I think it's 45 months. And uh, Biden was asking for 11 years. And wow. his lawyers were asking for one year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I mean, the, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. It's just awful. Yeah, yeah. But reading all about it, like all over again, reading his letters specifically really inspired me because I was thinking about the first time he said that he saw what the drones were doing. He was watching these men on a mountain and they were drinking. Mm-hmm. And he said they were sort of just like the men he would have grown up with drinking. Um yeah. And I and I thought about, you know, that connection that he made as as he basically blew them to pieces. Um, anyway, it just it just struck me. So I wrote the poem. Yeah, well, let's hear it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Sure. Thanks. Witness Daniel Hale, once a virgin American hardening as he watched the tea drinking men around the campfire on the mountain, all with weapons he would have had if he'd been there with them drinking, thinking this looks just like growing up in Bristol, Tennessee, where his friends and their fathers drank beers around the campfires they built on Holston Mountain in the Blue Ridge, not far from Damascus, not far from the waterfall at Blue Hole, these roads where he learned to drive with his blue eyes learned landmarks named for common settlers and hunters, regular folk like these men in the Afghani night as sold and worthy of remembrance as clinch. Daniel recognized their camaraderie, remembered his comrades as the purple colored crystal guts woke him up to the fact that they were strangers but his own, that his Blue Ridge brothers would have shattered and splattered all the same, that he was witness to the lies that this protects us at home, that we're fighting something bigger than ourselves, that drones are accurate and clean when he knows it's contracts and greed and grist for the mill of empire. Witness again as if for the first time here, although years have passed, how we ignore all the death we're responsible for, pretend we're not bloody, white, or blue, not flags, but then who? Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks for sharing that. An important poem to share, too. I mean, we, um, I don't know, I, I don't really watch much news, so I'm not 100% sure. Um, I, I get my news from, you know, Facebook posts from friends and from Twitter trending and from Poets Respond submissions. And um, I haven't heard anything about this except for your submission. Which um, I don't know how much it's being like swept under the rug, but it seems like such an important topic to be um, to be talking about, and and one that we're not really addressing. Well, thank you for thank you for letting me share it. I felt like it was really important, and so I really really appreciate being able to put it out here. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Yeah. So that was uh, uh, Emma Goldman Sherman from New York reading Witness Daniel Hale. Um, let's see. Let me try again with, uh, Gigi. Uh, hopefully Gigi Capone will answer this time. I think she was going to read, uh, Ted's poem. Let's see if it works. Hello. Hello. You are live. If you wanted to come out on video, uh, you can click the camera button 
But uh, you okay. don't have to if you don't want to. Hello. Hello. Let me uh, let me get you. You had a great connection. Let me let me resize That's it. Okay. Um, okay. There we go. So uh, so you're calling in, and you wanted to read uh, Ted Guevara's poem for him. Correct. That's my brother. Great. And um, do you uh, um, can you tell us a little bit about Ted? Um, you know how what's it like being Ted's brother or sister? <laughs> Well, it's fun to have a creative one in the family. I'm certainly not that person. So <laughs> I enjoy reading his uh, poetry and his books and um, his different ideas. <laughs> mm-hmm. So did you want to read his um, his nonce poem, Across and Down? Was that the one? Yes. Okay, great. Let me, uh, and do you want to explain, uh, do you want me to read this or do you want me to, do you want to explain what the style is? Did he tell you that? He did. He wrote this all out for me. So um, I can read this. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So this is from Ted. When I was in ninth or 10th grade, my grades were not that great. And I had a father who always sought something positive in me. Since my grades were not at his par most of the time, I would write a poem with the first letter of each line being my grade. Then I would present the poem to him before giving the actual report card. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't find one of these poems now after so many years. But back then, I started many lines with can't or devour and the occasional forceps. (laughs) (laughs) It's a simple technique. Decades later, I expanded on the idea by using the beginning word of each line to form a message if I read downward. Here's a sample. Across and down. Frame your memory so I could see it tomorrow. Your place in mine has gone off with the tide. Memory is not quite the warmth that was once on me. So gather the particles and weigh in. It's not too dispersed. I will look up and fly the gossamer of you yesterday. Could you withstand the mind without See it against the sea. It will elevate with the sun. I'll just diminish tomorrow. Excellent. And then so what, what is the secret hidden message? Okay, so if you read the first word of each of those lines, it reads, frame your memory so I could see it, could see it. Excellent. Yeah. Very good. Um, and yeah. yeah, a great, it's sort of a, a golden shovel is a form um, that came out, I don't know, pretty recently from Terrence Hayes, which is sort of the oh. opposite of that. It's interesting that Ted thought of it first. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. Or, or a different version of it. And I never knew. Yeah, excellent. This well, thanks like so much for sharing it. like the first time I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is great. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And thanks to Ted for writing and having you call in. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yep. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Yes, that was uh, Ted Guevara's sister reading his poem for him, Across and Down. Um, and now let's try. Um, let me read a poem for, um, it's called Karen Warinsky. Let's see what Karen has. A single stitch. Hey, Karen, you are live on the air. How are you doing tonight? 
I'm good. It's getting a little late for me, but here I am. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm glad we could get you in time. Um, do you want to come in on video or just stay in, in audio? Let me give it a shot. I think I just turned it on. There, there you we go. go. Yeah. Here I am. It's me. <laughs> yeah. Great to see you. So what do you have to share with us today? Well, um, you know, I did a poet's response piece and I knew it wasn't going to be um, probably what you picked for the week uh, as most important news, but it really touched me, the story. So I just wanted to, you know, write about it and I sent it to you. Yeah, that's great. So let us know what the story is. Uh, what was it about? Um, so basically, um, I, I sometimes read this thing called the Good News Network because oh, I, I love try that, to actually, yeah, uh, yeah I, I really do. So, Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need something on the positive side. And yeah, if you take, I, I follow it both on my personal Facebook and on Twitter just to have some good news because you know usually the the social media feeds are not and and I accidentally see a lot of social media just because I use it for rattle a lot and um and so you got to have some good stuff to balance out to, <laughs> to try to balance it out and I'll yeah. tell you we've been going through a couple of years here where it's been pretty intense for everybody. This, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, revelation each day, the uh, pandemic, the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, I was, you know, obviously that's on everybody's mind. And then this little story was so amazing because it was just about um, saving one creature. Mm-hmm. And I thought that really sort of sums up what we all need to be doing. You can only do what's right in front of you sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wrote about it and I'll, I'll love to read it for you now if you're ready. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, it's called a single stitch. Fish tangle in nets, bugs catch in sticky spider webs, people enmesh in their own intrigues. Much of life is murk and mess, and our attempts to restore can flounder. But it only took one stitch to fix the tree frog, his innards poking through a minuscule hole, the vet deciding she might be able to save the little creature, brought inside accidentally, clinging to a sheaf of grass. Needle and thread cannot repair the rip in our environment, nor our political breach, but affirmation and friendship help us bear the unbearable, make peace with the incomprehensible, face the future. The vet saved the tree frog, pushed his tiny organs back beneath his skin, sutured with a single stitch, showing us the covenant can be kept. We must try in these days of tears, tears, and fears, while waters rise, fires burn, and Babylon crumbles, to help each other through. Get your needle handy. Get ready to make a stitch. Oh, that's really wonderful. Great story. I'm really glad you highlighted that. Um, it reminds me of, um, you know, I'm in this high desert group too, high desert wildlife, because, you know, we live near the high desert. And there's just so many people that do, like they find, you know, uh, uh, some kind of bird or roadrunner that seems like heat stroke or whatever, and they're trying to nurse it back to health and asking for advice and people know where to take it. And, you know, and like saving rattlesnakes, it's just there's, there is good in the world. And, and it's great to hear a story like that. Thanks for sharing that, Karen. Oh, my pleasure. Bye, Tim. Yeah, bye. Have a good one. Now, once again, that was Karen Warinsky with A Single Stitch, a Poets Respond poem. Okay, and let's go to the first-time caller next, and um, this is Melody Wang. Hopefully, uh, Melody will be here. Hey, Melody, you are live on the air. Oh, hello. Oh, it's great to, great to have you here. Do you want to come in on video? You have to click the camera button if you do, but if not, that's okay. 
Okay, let me try this. There you go. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I'm happy so, to be here with yeah. everyone. Yeah, happy if, to have you. So where are you calling from first? I like to ask first-time callers. I'm, oh, I'm calling from Monrovia, California. Um, ah, like right down the hill from me. We actually get our, our furniture from a, a store there. <laughs> In oh, Monrovia, okay. The living spaces. We we got a oh, bunch yeah. of stuff there. with the big parking lot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's nice to see a poet uh, local. Um, Thank you. Tim. So, so what do you want to share with us today? Um, I wanted to share my poem um, that I submitted for the poets respond. It's called "As If in a Waterlogged Dream," and it was about the floods in Henan, mm-hmm. and that is my hometown. Um, my mom's family, well, my aunts and my uncle and all of my cousins, they're all still there. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just wanted to share that poem. Yeah. Are they all safe? Is everything kind of subsiding uh, and getting back to normal? Was there, I saw some video and it was really rough there. Yeah. Yeah. It's been devastating, but my family has been okay. Mm. Uh, thank God. Um, yeah, but it's, it's really devastating. I think the last numbers were 99 people. Mm-hmm. We're, we're dead and of course you know like nine million were affected and so many were displaced so yeah that's one of the things you know that, that we um you know it, it's awful when it happens and, and and all the destruction but if you look back in history i mean some of the floods have like eight hundred thousand, a million deaths you know and to have i mean 99 is is terrible but um it's come a long way in, in management and in, in communication to keep people out of harm's way and things like that at least you know yeah, definitely. I think I read somewhere it was caused by, you know, like the extreme global warming or weather events. So, yeah, it's like nothing that could have prepared anyone mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. Well, so. why don't you go ahead and read this? This is As If in a Waterlogged Dream. Great title, right. by the way. Yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay, thanks, Tim. As If in a Waterlogged Dream, I see Henan, my hometown, drowning in a demonic downpour. For the first time in years, I'm there with my people the ones displaced by the discordant nature of the heavy floods, frenzied and furious torrents, slamming Zhenzhou with one-third of its annual average rainfall in one hour, or a whole year's worth of water in just three unholy days. I slog through currents, past the frantic families still clinging to each other and another chance to live again. I'm there in the submerged, run-down neighborhoods, weather-worn palms outstretched to my elderly neighbors, their eyes wide with palpable panic, voices warped and shredded from sobbing, screaming as if that could force the floodwaters to relent, as if that would bring their only sons and daughters back to them. I'm there in the now-empty yellow subway platform with the father who could be my father, who would whistle as he biked his daughter to the platform each day, the cardboard sign he holds now in his rough, trembling hands echoes his plea that will go unanswered. My dear daughter, I would give anything just to bike you there each morning again. We do not need another baptism to cleanse us. We will forever seek what remains of the home we once knew. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, that, that cardboard sign um, is such a, a poignant part of the poem. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you, Tim. Happy to be here. Take care. Yeah, you too. And hope you can call in again sometime soon. Thank you for the space. Yep, Yep. bye. Bye. Yeah, so uh, once again, that was uh, Melody Wang with um, this poem here, As If in a Waterlogged Dream. Um, 
Okay. Let us go to um, Zachary Honeycutt next. Um, Zach's been on before, but it's been a long time, I believe. Um, let's see, when was he on last? Eh, June 27th, so a month ago. Um, but once a month, Jack, Zachary seems to call in. Oh, yeah, okay. This is what he's sending. Let's talk Talk to Zach. Hey, Zachary, you are live on the air. Thanks so much for uh, joining us again. Hey, Tim. How's it going? It's going great. It's a good night. Good to be back at work. You know, I have one of those jobs where I go on vacation, and then uh, I'm glad to be back because it's fun to do a lot of the stuff I get to do. Um, so so what did you want to share with us? I, it says it was inspired by the Ekphrastic Challenge, and that reminds me that I meant to include, I'm going to start including more of the Ekphrastic Challenge stuff on the Rattlecast. I don't know. We do Poets Respond, but we I should have the um, Ekphrastic Challenge poets on too and stuff like that. So I'll make a point to do that in the future. Um, but what was this about? So, yeah, okay. So I got two villanelles today. Um, so, yeah, so this is the Esprastic Challenge. I'm just going to read what I uh, wrote when I sent it to you because it sums it up the best. For a long time now, I've had it in the back of my mind to write some poems on the Tower of Babel, or at least the concept of the tower and how pride comes before a fall and such. When I viewed the picture for the Esprastic Challenge, it gave me an excuse to do just that. Almost immediately, the angelic-looking figure flying around over the water in the picture reminded me of Icarus and the devil. Upon further research while writing the poem, I found that not only did Icarus fly too close to the sun and fall, but he drowned in the sea. From that, I began to write a villanelle about how some in mankind are like Icarus or the devil, following after lofty dreams and worldly pursuits instead of the spirit of God and what God places true value on, such as kindness and obedience to him. I'm a Christian, and it's been a while since I wrote a good biblically-themed poem. I've wanted to write one for a while now, so I thought the structure of a villanelle, the way the lines wrap around each other over and over and over again, would hold merit with the way the poem is trying to establish the fact that what humans did during the day of Babel and their spirit of pride and haughtiness is still prevalent and being redone today. Um, so that's kind of what the poem is about. Excellent. It, and let me, it, let me just tell everybody uh, who's watching uh, that uh, this is the image. If you didn't, the deadline was uh, yesterday for this for, to submit poems for the Frasic Channel. So if you didn't do it yet, you missed out. But this is the image. It's by, um, by Lynn Tate. And um, it's this photograph of a sunset with some kind of um, winged creature. I don't even know if it's a bird or a bat or a, or Icarus um, flying over the water near what looks like maybe smokestacks. I'm not quite sure either. Um, it's an interesting photo. And uh, this was uh, Zachary Honeycutt's response to it. Uh, why don't you go ahead whenever you're ready, Zach? I'll put it up. Yeah, Definitely. It actually reminded me of the Mothman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of it's kind of got that shape, doesn't it? I'm not sure what what kind of animal that is. Actually, it'll yeah. be interesting to see. I haven't read any of the submissions yet, so um, we'll see. <laughs> well, here you go. Here, this is the first one. Yeah. Um, so, the children of Icarus. If Icarus fell, do you think you'll fly? Bezos rides high on his origin blue but they must build their towers to the sky. If Cush's son approved it, did he ask why? The tower built in Shinar isn't new. If Icarus fell, do you think you'll fly? Children still groaning with hunger must cry. 
millions per minute as rockets flew, but they must build their towers to the sky. Two princes of air cast down from on high. Lucifer had wings made of feathers too. If Icarus fell, do you think you'll fly? Do birds long to fly elsewhere than the sky? Do mammals that hunt and birth not want to? But they must build their towers to the sky. Now a word to those with the sun nearby. He drowned in rough water, and you may too. If Icarus fell, do you think you'll fly? But they must build their towers to the sky. Uh, excellent use of the Villanelle. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Zachary. Did you say you had two poems? Yes, I do. I have another Villanelle. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, it's in the same file here. I see it. Yeah, Respite for Zachary. And what is this? Okay, so this one, um, I sent this actually in one of the contest submissions for the Rattle Prize in September. And um, Oh, wait, for... Uh, yeah. So, so wait, I'm going to cut you off because we haven't judged this. It's supposed to be blind judged. I'm not going to read it or let you show it on air uh, since you submitted it for the uh, Rattle Poetry Prize because uh, it's supposed to be um, anonymously read, and so I don't oh, want to disqualify it from consideration. So yeah, so I'm oh. not gonna, I'm not gonna read it. But okay. but after September, if it's not one of the winners, call in and share it then. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Didn't realize. All right. Yeah, no problem. No problem at all. Uh, thanks, Zachary. Uh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> bye. Okay, take care. I'm glad you said that though. All right, bye. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so that was Zachary Honeycutt with uh, just one poem. Um, oh, he said it in the. Uh, um, in the in the subject line, I just didn't notice. Um, I should have. Okay, uh, let's see. Now Jane, Ann, oh look at this. So Jane Ann Fuller um, sent me an email. So um, so Roy Bentley mentioned that he loves this new book by Jane Ann Fuller. Jane, if you're there, do you want to call in and uh, read this poem? I'm trying to see if there's anybody who might be you on our call list. And I don't see it, actually. So, Jane, if you're actually watching, because Jane just 42 minutes ago sent uh, this poem. I'll read this poem and share it uh, if if I don't hear, if, if, if the phone doesn't ring in the next couple of minutes. Um, but let's call up, um, in the meantime, Richard Westheimer. Oh, yeah, some poems by Vicky Miko, too. Hey, Tim. Hey, Richard, let me shrink you down. You got that great internet connection. Yeah, I live out here in the country, and somehow they got us fiber optics. Who, that, who knew? Yeah, same here. I mean, we're a tiny town. We have uh, one gig, which is just amazing. I'm so grateful to the people who did that. <laughs> yeah, it made the pandemic a little... Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, sure. And, you know, and we were in Bend, Oregon, which is a pretty small city, and they have one gig in, by a local company, too. So maybe it's just the way of the future now, all these Comcasts and things we can get rid of and have more local companies provide good internet yeah i look i speaking of bend i looked after you said you were there i looked at that obsidian flow and that is just stunning yeah it's so cool let me actually pull up i meant to i had a picture um i had a picture i just so people can see it's really cool i mean when you see it from like this is the view let's see one of the aerial views I mean, you can see how it just spreads like this sort of... It reminds me, you know what it reminds me of? is the elephant's foot at Chernobyl. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, um, here is... Let's see, this is a picture of it. I'll show it on screen. 
Okay. Um, yeah, so this is the big obsidian flag. Yeah, Richard can't see it, but this is an aerial view. And you can hike up in here. There's this road here that's uh, East Lake and uh, Polina and, um, uh, Lake, which is, are both um, caldera lakes. This is a huge Newberry crater caldera with a cinder cone in the middle of Pumas. And then there's this road, and you just hike up, and you hike in this little mile loop up in the black obsidian glass, which this is the Wikipedia page. Maybe I have some more. Oh, these are like technical images. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I saw on Wikipedia, the one, the one that you're, you're yeah. showing there on my other screen. Yeah, here's another, um, some more. This is the uh, a different cone in the same Newberry Crater Caldera area. Um, anyway, yeah, so that is very cool stuff. Um, I I just love like everywhere we go there. We've been there three times because we're visiting relatives, and every time there's new cool places to explore. There's all these waterfalls and. You know, I like hiking, but there's no water around me, and there's no recent volcanism. It was millions and millions of years ago where we had volcanism here. Um, yeah. So, well, I, I, yeah. um, and great, and yeah, it it has been wonderful catching on all these Appalachian poets, and they're all folks who show up to some of the readings that I go to. So, like, oh yeah, this is the third one in a month. Oh, very cool. I was on a reading with Roy probably uh, two months ago, and but it's great to get the full. You know, rather than a feature poet who just reads for 20 minutes mm-hmm. to get the full interview and conversation. It, it, yeah, I, I like talking to people. It, it's a lot of fun. I, I, I get a lot out of it personally. So hopefully, I mean, the, the, the point is, or the hope is that if I get something out of it, everybody else does too. Well, and, and two things that came through today, both with your talking about your writing haiku on the airplane and Roy's conversation is how much joy there is in writing yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of angst. There's a lot mm-hmm. of you know. There's a lot of all all the other things that go with it. But it's just this sense of of joyfulness, which I have to remember. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I was thinking actually as I was writing on the plane, um, uh, what Ace Bodges said uh, about um, um, like like I don't take pictures. I just write poems. <laughs> and so right. I was just thinking of like images for the for the week that I you know, and then each one became a little haiku. And I wrote like twenty of them. Um, and, and, you know, and it was just fun and, and it's great that, that poetry can do that. Well, it reminded me of, I had a running coach for a little while and I sent him a picture of me with my running form mm-hmm. and I was really excited for him to send me back some nice thing about my form. And he said, you need to smile more, brother. <laughs> that was his whole, that was his whole, uh, and yeah. it changed my life. You know, it changed uh-huh. how you know, uh, my, my approach to running. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. Um, so, so which poem did you want to share? I think you, did you send two this week? I did. I did. <laughs> it's getting a little obsessive. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. Uh, so I'll do, uh, I'll get, I'll do a poet gets the twisties. Okay. And what was this about? Oh, uh, so this was, that's uh, pretty straightforward. You know, so Simone Biles talked about the twisties and the, you know, I read, you know, what that is and it's, you know, it's this disorientation when you're in the air and, and you know, you can just imagine the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the existential danger that puts a, um, a gymnast in. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, like, like pilots who get the vertigo and forget which way up is, you know, that, yeah. that, whatever that syndrome is that happens sometimes. Yeah, the uh, ground is really hard. Yeah, yeah, it really, especially when you're doing, a, you know, double pikes. <laughs> or whatever, yeah, whatever uh-huh. So, yeah. so I just, you know, it, it immediately felt like a metaphor. So mm-hmm. a, a poet gets the twisties. Okay. Um, 
I just uh, her her as an epigraph. Um, I just don't trust myself as much as I used to. I'm having a bit of the twisties. Yeah, it's a great phrase too. Somehow, in the except for your poem, I hadn't seen that uh, either. Um, I am like a gymnast turned upside down who remembers she has a body, tumbles like a juggling pin flung by a mad clown, suddenly thinks about which part of her would break as she hurtles towards ground she cannot see. She is as lost as a poet, dropped blind in a -a tilt-a-whirl of words swarmed with buzzes and bees and shouts and dying rhymes. I write on that same wild ride, fear the poem and its twisted nouns, its turns of phrase, its gravity, which flings me to the unforgiving page, shatters what bones remain that I'd use to land where I cannot see, discover what don't want to know. Yeah, excellent poem. A good metaphor for, for poetry, too. Do you know if she's uh, going to compete still, or is she just out of the Olympics completely? Uh, I haven't I seen any news today. I think there's one more event that she might compete in. But mm-hmm. well, uh, I heard I think she, you know, because there's the individual, like she withdrew from the team and the all-around, but there's like individuals in each one that she could still do, last I heard. Yeah, like she's dropped out of three of them. Oh, okay, yeah. There's one more pending. I, I you know... Uh, I just imagine when you get this in your mind mm-hmm. that you might be up in the air and start thinking about yeah. thinking, you know, like thinking. Yeah, it's hard about to it. imagine. Like once you withdraw from one, it's hard to imagine like redoing it ever, you know? I mean. Yeah. And like she's a, old, old for a mm-hmm. gymnast. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, and, you know, had to wait an extra year to mm-hmm. for this Olympics. So yeah, it's, I, it's too I bad. Ad, admire mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the sense of knowing what's best for yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing, an amazing person. Very cool poem. Uh, thanks, Tim. Appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate yep. the, the evening. Thanks a lot. Yeah, have a good night. I, that was Richard Westheimer. Okay, and now, let's see. So we, um, I don't see any calls from from Jane Ann Fuller, but she did send this poem. Uh, this is from her book, Half-Life, that Roy... Um, Bentley mentioned earlier today. So Julia, um, uh, or Jane Ann Fuller, I should say, was uh, listening and sent this in as a sample. So thanks for this. I'm really interested in hearing this poem. Uh, Let me put it up here. This is Everything Depends Upon. And this is from that book, Half-Life, once again. Okay, Everything Depends Upon. Sex and how well we position ourselves. The elbow developing a wing the reciprocating knee, the bird at the window proving all ledges are not for jumping, sometimes perching, watching with great admiration how a foot can be a part when it is nothing more than bone, and sometimes broken. What I love about you is your body, how it moves around your soul, a hand inside a glove, and when I see it bare like this more, this and wanting, I think how honey wants the bee to come. Oh, that's a beautiful poem, too. Um, Lovely short poem. Uh, Once again, by um, uh, Jane Ann Fuller from her book Half-Life. Let me, uh, I'll put this, see if I can put this on screen, too. Um, So you can see it's from from Sheila Nagig Books and um, uh, poems by 
Jane Ann Fuller. So check that out. That was the book that Roy Bentley was was recommending earlier on the show. Um, okay, so now let's really quickly, we will do um, the Saiku for today. And I was only going to share one. I happen to write two because I... Um, I was on vacation, so I wrote. I read a lot. I mean, you know, I read. I read a lot. It was nice um, reading articles and things instead of poetry for a little bit. And um, I had two here. Let's see. So the first, um, the first one was this story. And let me put it on screen. Drop that down. Okay. So. Um, this is a story from Yale News. Um, Eyes wide shut. How newborn mammals dream the world they're entering. And, and basically, what these uh, researchers did at Yale was um, look at the retinal waves in the brains of mice in the womb before they were born, and they found that they have the same uh, wave patterns as they would while visualizing things um, after they were born. So what they're doing is sort of previewing, and there's a really great video of the actual waves in these neonatal mice, uh, which you can find on this article at Yale, or news.yale.edu, if you type it into Google or whatever. And, um, um, but it's the first evidence that, um, that mammals dream in the womb. We kind of assume that they do or think that they do, but it's a really hard thing to find. And um, now we have this proof here. um, And it seems like what they're doing is looking, you know, trying to set up the brain to be ready to receive signals and interpret them so that as soon as they open their eyes, they can respond to danger and don't have to sort of program um, the world. And for the same reason that babies know how to latch and recognize their mother and and startle for sudden movements and things like that, um, it seems like the babies dream before they're born as well. And this was my short Saiku for that. Well, I I guess Haiku are always the same length. Okay. Morning fog, an infant dreams in the womb. Morning fog, an infant dreams in the womb. So that was my one Saiku uh, that I was going to share. And then this other one too, since um, the the coincidence that um, Nivedita mentioned bird brains. And um, this was the other article I wrote a Saiku about. Um, Bird brains left other dinosaurs behind. And this is an article from UT Austin, University of Texas, Austin. And they found this very rare fossilized three-dimensional skull of a pre, um, uh, pre-comet, um, pre-mass extinction um, early bird. A dinosaur that was sort of halfway into evolving toward birds, uh, basically. And uh, what they did is compare it to um, modern birds now. And they had such a great skull here that they could map the way the brain fit in the different regions of the brain compared to modern birds. And what they found is that these birds that went extinct, um, these birds that went extinct had smaller cerebral cortexes than the birds that we have now. And so it seems like the disaster of the comet that that caused the KT extinction event um, put so much environmental change pressure that that birds with bigger brains were selected for and survived, and the birds with smaller brains, like this poor, uh, what was it called? An ichthyornis. This poor ichthyornis wasn't smart enough to survive and so didn't. And that's why the birds these days are so smart. Um, you know, the crows are really smart. We have stellar jays here, and they're just genius. They they do all these 
things that you really am impressed by. And of course, crows can recognize faces. Um, they can recognize themselves. Um, another study showed that they understand the concept of zero, which we didn't understand until, um, you know, half of, of the modern human history. We didn't understand what zero was, but crows do. So um, very interesting story there. And um, so so birds are smarter than we think they are, is the basic gist. Or, and there's a reason for that. It's because that's the way they evolved and survived through these massive ecological destructions that have happened um, throughout history. And so here's my other Saiku. You try building a house from twigs and hay, bird brain. You try building a house from twigs and hay, bird brain. That is my second Saiku for today. And uh, now let us tell you what the uh, show next week is going to be. Next week's prompt is going to be at the library. A very simple one. Um, at the library. And uh, we'll see what you can come up with with that. Just situate yourself in a place and see what happens. Um, and next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Maria Meziati gillen and her new book, When the Stars Were Still Visible. Uh, Maria is sort of the, the patron saint of rattle, I think. She is just such a wonderful person and sort of the embodiment of what we think poetry is and kind of should be or could be. Um, you know, she, she just tells her story with such honesty and such heart, and all of her books are wonderful, and she's just an amazing person leading um, the uh, Poetry Center at PCCC um, and running the um, creative writing program at UC Binghamton. I mean, not UC Binghamton, um, SUNY Binghamton, I should say. And um, so she's got uh, one of the places that we publish a lot of poets from is that SUNY Binghamton program. And so Maria has been the teacher and, and mentor to many of them. And um, like uh, Dante DiFestano and um, Abby, Abby, um, Abby E. Murray and uh, a whole bunch of other people that we publish all the time were students of Maria. Um, and she's just a wonderful poet in person. I'm really looking forward to it. We interviewed her in issue number 46, and uh, we'll be talking to her again and sharing new poems on uh, Rattlecast number 105. It's Sunday, August 8th at, a, at the early time. We're going to be switching times um, just for this episode and for one coming up, too, in a few weeks. Um, and, what, and what that does is allow... It's a better time for Maria, and it's also um, allows some people in Europe and stuff to join in. So occasionally we're going to be j dropping uh, shows back to this uh, noon Eastern time um, slot. And this is going to be a week we're going to do that. Um, even though this is the regular time, is um, 8 p.m. Eastern at night, uh, this is going to be a noon show. And uh, that's Rattlecast number 105 with Maria Mazziotti-Gillen and your poems at the library. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. As always, hope you have a great rest of your week, and I'll see you for uh, the Critique of the Week 2 on Friday because we're back. Take care.